Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Janet Gubbis' fictional country town of Koora Creek is Robin Carr's Virgin River, but set in the outback. With the same stories of love and loss, flight and fight, that readers and fans all over the world have come to love. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on The Joys of Binge Reading, Janet talks about her latest book, not set in Cora Creek, but in the Hunter Valley, still in Australia, called The Lawson Sisters, a contemporary story of family guilt and estranged siblings. She's got some exciting new projects underway too, including a recreation of some of the Bronte sisters' most famous heroines in a 21st century setting. But before we get to Janet, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Janet's books and website, details about how to reach her on social media, and also on how to subscribe to the podcast if you'd like to hear future episodes. We always love to hear from you, so if you'd like to leave us a comment We'd be thrilled. But now, here's Janet. Hello there, Janet, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Well, thank you, Jenny. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Look, you've had an outstanding career as a journalist, and we'll get to that a little later in the uh, chat. But the obvious question for us is what drew you to fiction? Was it something you always had there simmering under the surface or was there a sort of once upon a time moment, an epiphany when you thought, I've just got to start writing make-believe? Well, I think I think it came out of being um, a successful journalist. When I started in journalism, I was writing stories every day and they were, a lot of them, they were stories about people, factual stories, true stories, news stories. But then I sort of got promoted and I became more management and I wasn't actually writing stories anymore about people. And that was not good. I think there's something in me that really wants to write. So I thought, well, you know, if I'm not writing factual, maybe I could write a bit of fiction. And I've always been a big reader since I was very young. So I thought, I might have a go at this. It can't be that hard. I was wrong. (laughs) Yes. Now, you've been based in England, I think, for quite a few years now. But a lot of your books are set in Australia. Is there a sort of nostalgia for past roots operating there? Oh, definitely. And it's it's a strange thing. I mean, I came to England because I was I was actually living in Hong Kong at the time and I fell in love with uh, an Englishman with green eyes and a guitar and a very, very cute bum. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> <laughs> when I came to England, I expected England and Australia to be very similar because there are obviously historic ties between the two countries. And in fact, I found that they are very, very different. So I think to a large extent, being away from Australia, I was looking at it from the outside and seeing things that I had thought were just every day, that's what the world is like. 
But I started to realise that actually that's not true. Some of those things are just what Australia is like and nowhere else in the world is quite like that. So, yeah, I think a certain amount of rose-coloured glasses, I'm sure, but it does help me stay connected with my roots back there. Yeah, sure. And do you find that internationally readers enjoy that Australian regionalism? I think they do. Um, I've got quite a lot of readers here in the UK who send me messages saying things like, oh, I've always wanted to go to Australia and now I want to go even more. And I had one lovely letter from someone who, or email from someone who said, please tell me that Koora Creek, which is where one of my series is set, please tell me that Koora Creek's real because I want to go there and live there. <laughs> I had to disappoint her, <laughs> <us>, sadly. <laughs> yes, well, you began very strongly in romance with, I think your debut novel was The Farmer Needs a Wife, and you went on to that award-winning Koora Creek series that you've referred to. But your latest one, the Lawson Sisters is set in the Hunter Valley, which is a real place, and it's more widely focused. It's a story of guilty family secrets and estranged sisters. It, it verges more into the area of women's fiction or family life fiction, doesn't it? So what drew you in that direction? Yes, it, it does. There's still romance in there. I think there will always be romance, a degree of romance in my books because uh, so much of our life is... Um, wrapped around um, the person you choose to be your life partner and that formulates your whole life. But I think I'm exploring now some wider issues. I think it's, I get angry sometimes um, when I see things in the news or I'll meet somebody who has been through something or experienced something or I'll go somewhere where um, I see a side of life that I haven't seen before. And I think increasingly this is informing what it is that I want to write. I still want to write happy endings. I still want to write books that say strong women, get out there, you can do this, you can take control of your life. But I think I'm delving a little bit more into the things we have to overcome to do this now. Yes, yeah, so the Lawson girls, um, the sisters become estranged over a family tragedy and they grow up quite a long time with an underlying misunderstanding about, about what's going on between them, which results in the fact that as they get into early adulthood, they really split apart. One has a very successful career in the city and the other stays on the farm. And I think you capture very well that way that sisters can get a divide dug between them, even when they, neither of them really want that to happen. Ha have you been a sister yourself? Do you have any personal insight into that? Oh, I didn't have a sister growing up. I had a brother and I'm very close to my brother, but when you're a teenage girl, a brother's not much good to you. You can't talk about clothes and makeup with a teenage boy. And you certainly can't talk about boys with your brother, particularly when the boys you might want to talk about are actually his friends. <laughs> but um, when I was about uh, in my 20s, I think, my um, my father was had been widowed and he remarried and I got a stepsister. And it was wonderful to have another girl in the family, someone I could talk to about these things. And we're both a little bit crafty. By that, I mean I knit, she embroiders. Despite the fact that we grew up in different countries, actually, she was born in Zimbabwe, um, 
We're so very alike. We could actually be real sisters, and that's a really nice feeling. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Look, as we mentioned, Kura Creek has evolved into a series, and you've done a number of other standalone books as well. You've picked up a lot of awards with your writing. Which of your books have you got the fondest attachment to? Is there one that stands out? Oh, everybody asks that. It's it's one of those questions. It's a good question, but we always worry as writers when we get this. Our book babies are supposed to be like real children. We're not supposed to have favourites. But I know. We do. <laughs> we really do. And any writer who says they haven't got a favourite is probably telling a little fib. Um, I love them all uh, in different ways. Um, I love my first novel because it was the breakthrough. It achieved this goal that I'd been after. Um, I'm particularly fond, I have to say, of the second Kura Creek book. It's a book called The Wild One. The hero in that is a former serviceman suffering from PTSD and he's possibly my favourite hero from any of my books. But I usually like the last book best until the next book comes out. I'm very, very fond of the Lawson sisters. But having said that, I'm currently in the final stages of writing the next book, and I'm just loving that. One of the characters in that is just wonderful. That's fantastic, Janet. You haven't mentioned marrying the rebel prince, and we have to talk about that because it's a 21st century Cinderella story that was timed beautifully to come out just about the time of Prince Harry's wedding to Meghan Markle. I wondered if that was journalistic canniness or just happy coincidence. Oh, I wish I could say it was that I was that smart, but I'm not. Um, what actually <laughs> happened with that, um, when I decided to start writing fiction, it took me a little while to figure it all out. Um, you'll talk to, I'm sure a lot of other authors have said the same thing to you. And Marrying the Rebel Prince was a book that I wrote more than 10 years ago. And it was only oh, the third book that I wrote. And it wasn't very good. I made a lot of mistakes in it. And um, one of the people who, who was mentoring me at the time, we went through the book and they pointed out all the mistakes and I went, oh dear, and then went on to write um, The Farmer Needs a Wife, which was the next book. But when I saw Harry and Meghan got engaged, I was actually travelling for my day job and I was in, I think, Belgium. And I thought, ooh, I've got a book about the second son of a royal family, a rebel second son of a royal family. Oh, he used to be in the military. And he marries a, well, a, a creative young woman who's not at all um, aristocratic. So I emailed my agent and said, I've got this book. Do you think you could sell it? And the, she'd actually sold it before either she or the editor who bought, who bought it had read one word of it because they just knew the time was right for that book. And I guess you then went back and did quite a bit of a rewrite on it, did you? Oh, yeah, because when I wrote it, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there were no smartphones, and you can't really write a royal romance without a little bit of that sort of thing creeping into it. Absolutely. The social media has become a, life, a lifeblood, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, it has many things in its favour, many things against it sometimes, but, yeah, yeah, it is a part of our life now. And one of the things that 
I try to do with all of my books is make them real. I want to make the characters real. I want to make their lives real. I want people to believe in these characters. So it just wouldn't occur to me now um, to write a character who didn't have a mobile phone or internet access or those things that are such a huge part of our lives now. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got another writer name altogether and a completely different sort of book, and that is... With your friend Alison May, you co-write under the joint name of Juliet Bell, doing a wonderful series, well, there are two of them now, of Bronte-inspired novels, where you take Bronte heroines and place them in an entirely different time and setting. The most recent one, The Other Wife, you took Charlotte Bronte's heroine, Jane Eyre, and set her in, in contemporary life. Tell us about the inspiration for these books. Well, it, Wuthering Heights was the first of the Bronte books that we did, and I've always really liked this book. It's dark, it's passionate. I get a little bit upset when people talk about it as a romance and about Heathcliff as a hero, because he's really not. He's really a nasty piece of work. It's a love story, an intense and passionate love story, but it's not exactly a romance. And certainly, you know, Heathcliff and Kathy don't get a happy ending. I've always wanted to work with that book and to set it against um, the Thatcher years here in the UK, against the miners' strike and the dissolution of the pits and all that social upheaval that happened in Yorkshire at that time. Because one of the things about the Heights is a story of disillusionment, and that's what was happening during the Thatcher years. And, you know, journalist here, I was writing stories about Margaret Thatcher and what was going on in the miners' strike. Anyway, I was at a writers' conference and I did a workshop there on location and how important location is when you're writing a book. I used Wuthering Heights as an example. And then I attended a workshop that Alison had given because she was doing Shakespearean adaptations at the time. And she talked about adaptations. And then afterwards, we didn't really know each other, but afterwards in the bar, we had several glasses of wine and went, yeah, we should write this book together. Yeah. I said, I don't know anything about Yorkshire. And she said, oh, I grew up in Yorkshire. And we had another glass of wine and thought it was a really good idea. And about a week later, she emailed me and said, you know, when we're in the bar and we said we should write a book together, uh, were you serious? And I said, uh, yeah, possibly. So that was, an excuse, that was an excuse for a long lunch and pizza and another couple of glasses of wine. And it resulted in The Heights and most recently um, The Other Wife, which, of course, is Jane Eyre. Because in both cases, the heroines in those books are different when you look at them through modern eyes. And also the heroes, neither Heathcliff nor Rochester, by today's standards of a guy you're going to fall in love with, not really. They're both self-centred. They're both bullies. So it was really interesting looking at those characters with 21st century eyes. Yes, yes, I'm glad you say that because it's always occurred to me that Heathcliff was, um, you know, almost misogynistic. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's a fascinating character. I've read the book I don't know how many times. If you, I have a paperback copy of it here and it falls apart every time I pick it up. He's a fascinating, fascinating character, but he is not a romantic hero. Yes, yeah. I'm left with 
the feeling that with the variety of things that you've tackled, that you certainly like to give yourself challenges and keep life interesting. Would that be a fair assumption? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, because I also uh, teach creative writing and um, but even just uh, as a writer, I want to challenge myself with every book that I write. And in a lot of cases, uh, the challenge is as structural as it is anything else. I wrote a book called Bring Me Sunshine, um, which is actually set on board a cruise ship going to Antarctica. Uh, it was a lot hasten to say I've never been to Antarctica on a cruise ship, but my lucky sister-in-law has. I spent a lot of time pestering her with questions. But the challenge for that one was the, the, the cruise lasted two weeks. Could I make this couple fall in love in two weeks? Um, the challenge with, um, say, oh, I don't know, the heights was could I move these characters into the 21st century and still maintain the passion and the the, the intensity of the story? Um, I did another book which the um, ha- hasn't been published yet. I haven't quite finished it. It's going to my agent hopefully in a few weeks where there's two concurrent timelines running uh, and I felt that was a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, every book I write, I want to be different. I want my readers to get something different out of it. I never want to get predictable. Um, I want to challenge myself all the time. How did you make Heathcliff acceptable to a 21st century audience? Probably didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did I think the thing about Heathcliff is, and, you know, I'm not a Bronte scholar by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with me, but part of what made Heathcliff who he was was the brutal treatment he received. Now, um, uh, Kathy's father, uh, the old man, just picked him up off his mother and dragged him away from the only home he'd known and set him down in the middle of the Yorkshire Moors. That must have been terrifying for the child that he was at the time. And then, you know, Hindley brutalised him all the way through the book. So while Heathcliff is not a nice character, and I don't think, I think anybody who tried to make him a nice character wouldn't be true to um, Bronte's vision. But I think maybe by exploring a bit more of his background and by putting that into a 21st century setting in a place where the whole community was falling apart and there was violence on the streets and this is how he grew up, I think it makes him understandable, if not likeable. Yeah, yeah. So how do you and Alison approach the collaboration in terms of straight practical working? How does it work? Uh, It involves a lot of pizza and red wine. <laughs> well, we actually live some distance apart. She lives in the Midlands and I live in London. Uh, so when we decide on a project, um, we have a long lunch and talk it through and try and decide what it is we're going to do with this project and how we're going to approach writing it. Uh, we then both went away and read the books in analytically and wrote notes and did a chapter outline and all of this. Um The approach varied a little between the two books. In The Heights, we were actually writing, she'd write a bit, then I'd write the next bit, and then she'd write a bit, and I'd write a bit, following on from each other. But then we ran out of time. We had a deadline. So (laughs) 
she wrote a whole slab and I wrote a whole slab and we blended them later. For the other wife, it was a little bit different. Um, one thing we wanted to do with that was give the mad wife a voice because all she is in the original is this mad wife locked in the attic. And that seems to make her, well, it seems to cheat her out of saying, well, hang on, this is my story. So I wrote Jane and Alison wrote, we called her Betty to give her a slightly more modern name. So uh, that way we got two distinct voices because uh, we they're two very different and distinct characters. And we just have a Dropbox online where we store stuff so we can see what each other is doing. And it does mean that you it does require working in a collaboration that you not get precious. I would... I write very tight first drafts. She writes very loose first drafts, and I'd get her first draft uh, of, of a section, and I'd very tentatively email and say, "Oh, look, I'm really sorry, and don't be mad at me, but I really, I, I really want to change this." And she'd go back and go, "Yeah, fair enough." So <laughs> and then she'd ring me, and she she would write to me, and she would say, "In Yorkshire, we don't say creek." That's an Australian word. So I ended up with a, a list of Australian words that I was not permitted to use in the book. <laughs> oh, that's great. Look, turning to your wider career, sort of focusing away from the specific books, we've referred in passing to your journalistic career. You've had a lot of very exciting events to cover. I've just seen a hint of one or two of them online. Can you tell us a little bit, a, a quick encapsulated version of your what you did with your journalism? Oh wow! Um, well, I got uh, I started working in television uh, more years ago than I'm going to admit to, but it was a time when there were no female television journalists, or maybe one or two, but we were certainly a rarity. So I spent a fair bit of time then, um, well, not arguing, but fighting to be accepted as a serious television journalist in a world that was predominantly um, male. And I started off as a general reporter and I then I did police rounds and I did courts and I did politics. I was actually doing politics in Queensland at the time of the fall of the Bielke-Peterson government, which was mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so and then uh, once I sort of moved away from the day-to-day -day journalism, I got involved in the technology for producing um, news. So um, the last few years I've spent wandering around the world um, installing um, high-end computer systems in television stations in all sorts of places and helping uh, a lot of emerging nations and places, uh, for example, for the, the Kurdish people after the end of the Iraq war. I went to Iraq to try and help the Kurds in the north to uh, set up a TV station to give themselves a voice after many, many years of being held uh, under by um, the old regime. So mm. uh, that's a lot of fun, a lot of yes. inspiration in that sort of work. Yeah, I was going to say, how has it fed into your fiction? Well, the, um, the the wild one, for example, with the soldier and that with PTSD, oh, yeah. he had come back from Iraq. So uh, having been in Iraq and seen what it was like and um, almost got arrested at the airport and involved in a shootout with a taxi driver and all this sort of stuff, <laughs> I felt 
not able to express his fear and, <laughs> and his response to the violence that he saw there. And I had a feel for the people in the country. Uh, so locations as much as anything um, and people I meet feed into my stories. Uh, the uh, Flight to Kura Creek, which was the first Kura Creek book, there's a character in that, no spoilers here, but it's a nun. And she was inspired by a nun I met as a journalist. She worked in a burns unit, a specialist burns unit in a hospital that dealt with children. And on a day-to-day -day basis, she saw children coming into those wards you know, that had been burned horribly in accidents and sometimes, sad to say, not in accidents. And... As a person, she was so inspiring. She was so calm. She was so sure in her faith, in her religion, but also in her faith in people. And I thought she was wonderful. And I always wanted to eventually write a book with a character like that. And, you know, I just hope I did her justice. Oh, that's lovely. Look, is there one thing that you've done, perhaps more than any other, that you'd put down to the secret of your success? Oh, secret to success. I think, okay, I'm going to credit my dad with this. Uh, I lost my dad some years ago, um, but he always encouraged me. He taught me to love books, he taught me to love reading, and he taught me to think and be analytical a little bit about what I'm reading. And he also taught me, um, his mantra was that I could do or be anything I wanted to be if I was prepared to work hard enough for it. Now, I think he was wrong. I'm five foot three. I was never going to be a supermodel or an Olympic gymnast, no matter how much work I put in. But he was right in terms of this, because I think to be a successful writer, the first thing you have to do understand is that it's like any other creative endeavour. Um, you wouldn't if you wanted to be a concert pianist, you wouldn't expect to be able to sit down tomorrow and do a, uh, a performance at the Royal Albert Hall. It takes years to develop your skill and you never stop practising and you never stop learning. And I think writing's the same. Uh, the easiest way to learn how to write is just to sit down and write, but never stop learning, never stop reading, never stop analysing um, because there are tricks to the trade and ways of doing things that work and ways that don't work. And some things don't work when you're starting out, but 10 years later when you've got a bit more skill, have another go at it. You might be able to make it work this time. Yes, yes, that's great advice. Look, turning to Janet as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, what have you in the past liked to binge read and what are you currently reading? Have you got any recommendations for our listeners? Ah, well, here we go. Um, my a, a really big binge read for me was Robin Carr, um, who wrote the Virgin River series, which has just recently been made. I don't know if you got it out there. Net yes, I've watched it because Martin Henderson is actually a Kiwi. Absolutely, yes, and he is lovely in that. I'm. Quite He's great. Scared. I can't wait for the next series. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was actually living in New York at the time and went to a Romance Writers of America conference, and. Uh, they were they were handing out free books. It was wonderful, all these free books. And I got <laughs> given the first 
Virgin River book. And I actually got to meet Robin Carr and get her to sign it for me. And I read the first one, and I don't think I read another author until I'd read all the Virgin River books. I just went, ploughed through them. I just love them. That's interesting because I've seen your Kura Creek series um, described as being very similar to Virgin River. I thought that was a great compliment. Oh, that is a huge compliment. Oh, I hadn't seen that. Thank you. Mm. But, yeah, Mm. that was, in fact, what inspired me to have a go at writing a a rural series um, because I loved her books so much. Um, And my other binge read, I have to say, was George R. R. Martin. Uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, I'm, a, right. yes. I'm a huge fan of science fiction and fantasy. I think possibly because I don't write it, um, mm-hmm. I read it. It doesn't get confused in my head. And when I read the first book, which was a good five or six years before the television series started, I read the first book and went, wow. And so what I do now, because he hasn't finished the series in terms of books, is every time there's another book coming out, I go back to book one and read all the full story again and then move on to the new book at the end of it. So, oh, my God. So at this point I think I've read book one six, maybe seven times. <laughs> oh, amazing. Did you watch the show as well? Oh, I did. I thought they did a really, really good job. Um, they diverted from the books quite a bit, but... These books are the size of a house brick, so (laughs) there's really not room to put all that on television. Uh, But I thought they did did really well, and I thought um, Jon Snow was quite sort of cute, yeah, grumpy, surly, sort of slightly grubby, sweary sort of a way. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds very appealing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, look, we're starting to come to the end of our time together, Janet. So circling around, imagining that you're looking back down the time tunnel, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all again, is there anything you would change? No, I don't think so. Uh And that's not to say that everything's been perfect. Um, I mean, I started out writing short stories for women's magazines, which I still do occasionally. I learned a lot from that. Uh, There may be career steps that I have taken that in 2020 hindsight, there might have been a better thing to do at the time. But having said that, every decision I've made in my writing career has brought me to the point that I am at now. And I like where I am now. I'm very excited about where I am. I'm really excited. I've got four books in my head. Um, Two are part written, two are just scribbled notes um, on a piece of paper, but I'm very excited about them. So I think that Every decision I've made, everything that's happened to me during this writing career has led me to the point where I am now and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else right now. That leads very beautifully, mentioning the four books, into the penultimate question. What is next for Janet the writer and works in progress? Is there any more Kura Creek coming? Uh, I never say never. Um, But I've actually, I'm just writing a book now in a new town um it's a little closer to the east coast the problem with Kura Creek well not problem but from a writing point of view is it's so far in the outback it gets hard to find a reason for somebody to move there and you do need new people to come in 
Uh, so the book that I'm actually I'm going away next week. I'm spending a week in a hotel in Devon and I'm just going to finish this book because it has to go to my editor Monday week. Um, it's another rural and it's another family story. Can't say too much, but it does have two wonderful, wonderful matriarchs who are glaring at each other basically across the aisle of the church for half the book, hating each other without realising that actually they've got a lot more in common than they think they have. Yes. Um, and they have been a joy to write. And I've also got quite a, a darker novel which uh, is based on my years living in New York and uh, a little more issues-driven, perhaps. Uh, as a former political reporter, I do watch the politics a lot. And when something makes me angry, it tends to inspire me to write a book. <laughs> so I can see uh, over the next few years, I'm hopefully going to have two strands of my writing. One of the rural stories, the women's fiction, that are warm, happy stories about strong women overcoming their problems, uplifting stories, if you like, on one side and on the other side, my I'm angry at this darker sort of stories. Yes, yes. Look, it's been fantastic talking. We have come to the end of our time together. So give us a, a few clues as to where readers can find you online. Do you like to um, interact with your readers? Absolutely. Um, I love hearing from readers. I have a website, which is just janetgover.com. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And please uh, drop, it, get, drop me a line. Let me know what you think of the books. Whenever I hear from readers, I'll let you into a secret. Shh, don't tell anyone. But it's like quite often when I get a letter from an e or an email from a reader, I have a little cry. <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> well, look, Janet, thank you so much. for You've been a great guest, most lovely to talk to you. You've had such a fascinating and are having such a fascinating life and it's coming through in your work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Uh, and everybody out there, thank you for listening. And, uh, yeah, do drop me a line if you like the books. Wonderful. Thanks, Janet. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. 
I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.